0: And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. This morning we look at Jude verses 2 through 4. False teachers sneak into assemblies. So, knowing true faith and then contending for it is very, very important. And now, Pastor Robert Elliott. And so why
1: would God, the Holy Spirit, add love to the customary Jewish greeting of mercy and peace? Why would he add love? Because we're going to need agape love to stand up against false teachers. We're going to need to love the flock of God and the family of God that God has given to us as fathers or mothers enough to stand up to false teachers. We love the people we're protecting in the truth. Secondly, I believe he adds the word love to this customary Hebrew greeting because Now you have all three things that are all byproducts of God's grace. Where there is God's grace, there is mercy. Where there is God's grace, there is peace. And where there is God's grace, there is agape love. And in contrast, for false teachers, they do never traffic in grace. In contrast, where there is ungrace, if that is a word, that is law and works In addition to the cross, wherever there is ungrace, wherever false teachers go, there is spiritual failure and there is spiritual death. False teachers hate grace because they love religion. False teachers hate grace because only born-again biblical Christianity majors in grace. Every other religion, Christian religion or any other world religion, majors in merit and work and performance. And so false teachers, because they hate grace, Jude prays for those facing false teachers that they would have multiplied mercy facing false teachers, that they would have multiplied peace facing false teachers, and that they would have multiplied love. Facing false teachers, that they would have grace facing false teachers. Oh yes, false teachers hate grace. They push ungrace. They are immoral. They are ones to reinvent Christ. They are contentious. They're looking for a fight. They are unloving. They are unsacrificing. They are self-serving. They are religious. That's what false teachers are. And so I hope, are you hearing it? Are you hearing your name being called? Sally. Ready, steady, go. John. Ready, steady, go. Are you hearing your name being called? Rob, you're called, loved, and kept. Rob, have multiplied mercy, peace, and love because you're going to need all of them. Now we turn to verses three and four. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude was fully intending to write about the common salvation that he shared with those that would read his letter. He was going to perhaps celebrate the scope and the magnitude and the permanence of that salvation, the wonder of it. But the Spirit of God switched his mind, switched his intent, switched his plan. And instead of writing about the common salvation, he felt a strong compulsion, a necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. You see the article, the faith, it's not for faith, it's the faith. The definite article means it's a body of truth that we place our faith on. It's not nebulous, it's not ill-defined, it's not changing, it's the faith. That from New Testament times, through Jesus Christ's own teaching and through the apostles carrying forward that truth, Into scripture by the Holy Spirit's empowerment and inspiration. It's that body of defined truth that is unchanging that we are to earnestly contend for, which has been handed down to the saints. And so, if you are born again, you are being called, we are being called to earnestly contend for the faith. Against whom? Verse four. Certain persons. He doesn't name them. He doesn't name them. Certain persons. Maybe he didn't name them because there were so many. Maybe he didn't name them because he was more interested in having the biblical principles to spot them and identify them than them just to lock in on a few people and and miss the others without a biblical grid through which to sort them. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints for certain persons Have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. False teachers are two things they are sneaky. They don't walk into your Bible study or into our church worship service and say, I'm a false teacher, pleased to meet you. They're sneaky. They don't stand out at first. They sing our songs. They open our Bible. They talk our language. They are chameleons. They blend in by design. They're wearing evangelical church camel. They seemingly are just like a homogenization of orthodox believers. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ you may be thinking pastor I understand that's a problem I understand it could be a problem right with my kids or my brothers and sisters in Christ in this church I get it I understand that there are false teachers and I understand they need to be confronted but pastor I don't have any formal Bible education. How can I contend with false teachers? Well, first, by not being one. (laughs) Second, by not learning error from one. How would you not learn error from one except you know the truth well? You have to know the truth well to spot error, right? Especially if it's parsed and nuanced and just tweaked a little bit. I'm a fisherman. I don't throw a big fluorescent stone into the water and hope to catch a trophy fish. I throw something in the water that looks just like what they like to eat, except there's a barbed hook
0: in my lure or my bait. And now, today's personal God story. Today is the last installment for Pastor Elliot's unique God story. In this chapter, we will hear our big struggle to obey Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we will learn of the outcome of that struggle. What
1: happened was, um, I went to the
0: University of Toronto
1: as a freshman at a high school, and my plan was to um, study business administration with a view of going into my family funeral home business. and. Um, that was my plan. That wasn't God's plan for me, but that was my plan. And uh, it didn't go well, my studies didn't go well. I was I was distracted, I was unhappy. Uh, I didn't really study as hard as I could've and my grades reflected it. And uh, things were not going well, I wasn't happy. And, and uh, at Christmas, um, one of my friends from high school, another friend, He had entered at the University of Toronto with me at the same time and he'd taken sick with mononucleosis. And so he had to drop out of the University of Toronto first semester because of his sickness. And um, another friend of ours from high school uh, was also what I call a closet Christian in high school. So there were three closet Christians, myself, this friend of mine who got mono Nucleosis in freshman year of university and this third man who um, went off to the Word of Life Bible Institute in Scroon Lake, New York, uh, Word of Life Ministry School, Bible School. And this man who went off to Word of Life came to the same Christmas party and he uh, turned to me and to the other closet Christian who was sick with mono and he said to us, do you guys know God's will for your lives? And I said, man, I don't know God's will for my life. Um, I've been a Christian a long time, but I do not know God's will for my life. And this man said, um, do you suppose you could know God's will for your life if you don't know his word? And I thought about that and I thought, no, I don't think you could know God's will for your life if you don't know his word, the Bible. He said, this guy said, I don't think you could either. How well do you know the Bible? And I said, not very well. I've been a Christian since I was four or five years old and I'm in my early twenties. I've known the Lord as my savior a long time, but honestly, I don't really know his word. So the guy circled back and he said, again, I ask you, Could you know God's will for your life if you do not know his word? Well, that made a lot of sense. It was a penetrating question. Turned out probably it was one of the most penetrating and important questions I've ever been asked in my life. So he said to me, I challenge you. He said, at some point, I challenge you to go to the Word of Life Bible Institute for a one-year course of intensive Bible study, one-year course. I challenge you to do that. So you would come to know the word of God well enough that you could find out the will of God for your life. I challenge you to do that. Well, that made a lot of sense to me. And I decided that I would finish my business administration degree at the University of Toronto. And when I finished, I would commit myself to going to the Word of Life Bible Institute for one year to try to understand God's will enough that I could understand his will for my life, whether that was to go into the funeral home business or to do something else. So after I graduated from the University of Toronto, I went enrolled at Word of Life Bible Institute. I decided that was what I should do. So I went, and what's strong about that Bible school is that, and by the way, they have a campus in Florida as well, They didn't have a Florida campus when when I went, but they now have a campus in Florida and in upstate New York, and they have campuses in different countries around the world now, too. So there I was at the Word of Life Bible Institute, and their strength was to bring in guest Bible teachers. And uh, maybe for one week they would teach, or they might teach for two weeks, but they brought in very, very good Bible teachers for one or two weeks at a time. And so as I was trying to understand God's will for my life there at the Bible Institute, two verses kept coming before me all the time. And they were these verses, Romans 12, one and two. Therefore, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's
0: will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com That's EOC radio at gmail.com. Today, Pastor Elliot draws from Carl Laney's excellent book, Answers to Tough Questions. This book was published back in 1997. And once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliot. The
1: next question comes from Luke 17, 20, and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Question. Did Jesus teach that the kingdom of God was internal and spiritual rather than physical and literal? Jesus' statement, the kingdom of God is in your midst, found in Luke 17, verse 21, has been interpreted to mean that he did not anticipate any physical, literal kingdom for Israel. A careful study of the biblical teaching on the kingdom of God shows That the kingdom of God is both spiritual and literal, both present and future. There is abundant evidence that Christ and his disciples anticipated a future kingdom. Matthew 25, verse 34, Matthew 26, verse 29, Luke 19, verse 11, Luke 22, verse 30, Acts 1, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 15, verse fifty; Second 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. While a future, literal kingdom cannot be denied Scripture also teaches that the kingdom of God is developing as a spiritual reality in this present age. See Matthew 5 verse 20, Matthew 13 verse 11, Luke 18 verse 16, John 3 verses 3 and 5, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, Colossians 4 verse 11. The kingdom of God involves God's people in God's place Under God's rule, let me say that again. The kingdom of God involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. This kingdom was inaugurated through the coming of the promised Messiah. God's kingdom is present, developing reality to be fully realized at the return of the king. Then all that was promised David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, will be consummated, fulfilled, completed. The throne, the dynasty, the kingdom, and Christ, the king, will literally reign throughout all eternity. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33. Of course, Hurricane Matthew has swept over the Caribbean and the Bahamas in particular. It was the first hurricane that uh, me and my family ever endured and uh, in the quieter moments uh, during that hurricane and since I've been able to think about some life lessons that I've learned and I thought I might share those with you this morning. The storm was a contentment check. Contentment is a highly prized attribute that God esteems to be in his children. He wants us to be content with what we have. And the storm was a contentment check. Listen to First Timothy 6, 6-8. through But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For if we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food... And covering with these, we shall be content. The storm brought into focus for me that I have a lot of things that aren't essential, that I have a lot of things that are secondary things, and that there are things that are truly needed, but other things that I think are are needed, in actuality, aren't needed. Uh, The storm, I believe, asks the question of Bahamians, do I actually need X, Y, Z? Or can I do without that? Which of the things that I consider that I own, which of them are most important? And which of those, it doesn't really matter if I have them or not. Or, of the things I lost through the storm, what, what must I replace? And what do I not need to replace? A lesson I learned from Hurricane Matthew. Life itself tops what you do or what you have in life. Psalm 36, verse 9 psalmist david uh, speaking to god for with thee is the fountain of life in thy light we see light david was saying god you're the source of all all living things you are the source of my own particular life and um you know when people as we all can be prone to doing. When we started complaining about how many days we were without electricity, uh, the truth of the matter is it's only because God gave us life and spared our lives that we even can use electricity. (laughs) I mean, the fundamental thing is life. You, you died in that hurricane. You don't need electricity. You don't need cable TV. You don't need anything. They're all just secondary things. And so that's why I love what I heard of the Bahamas before the hurricane, well before the hurricane. When I asked people, how are you doing? Many Bahamians said, thank God for life. Well, now that saying rings even more true. A lesson from the hurricane is that generosity emerges in difficulty. Generosity emerges in difficulty. In John chapter 6, listen to a true story. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And a great multitude was following him, because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing what a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, "'Where are we to buy bread?' That these may eat. And he was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. The denarius was the average daily wage of a a laborer. So Philip's saying, Lord, (laughs) two thirds of a year's earnings for an average man wouldn't buy enough bread. Verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place so the men sat down in number about 5,000. That means they didn't count women and the kids. So there were probably about 10,000 people there. Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. Jesus was doing a golden corral buffet for that many people with one sack lunch. And when they were filled He said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. I just imagine there's 10,000 people, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're hungry. They've walked a long ways to hear Christ. And it becomes the buzz in the crowd is uh, they didn't bring anything for us to eat. And some people are probably getting very anxious, some getting angry. Adversity is, is building with every minute. And some little lad caught wind of there was a problem with food. So what, would he do, what was he to do? I've got a bag lunch, so I'll hide it and I'll just eat it because I'll, it doesn't look like there's much on the menu. Uh-uh. he did the opposite in the adversity and problems he walked up to Jesus' disciple and said here take my lunch this little guy didn't secretly uh, get grabby about his lunch he gave everything he had away and we saw that we saw a lot of that in the hurricane that the adversity caused many godly people to give up everything they had for others I love that The storm taught me that it's clear that we must handle people with care. It's clear that we must handle people with care. When we go to Galatians 5 and consider the fruit of the Holy Spirit who lives inside a true believer in Jesus, it says in verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. I wanted to make it my practice and I continue to want to make it my practice if I'm going to err in a human relationship that I would err on the side of grace, that I would be quick to give people better than they deserve. That if I'm going to make a mistake in this, that I'd err on the side of kindness versus
0: criticism or harshness or anything like that. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at EOCradio at gmail.com That's EOCradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684 Nassau, Bahamas And remember Everyone needs a savior.